Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are here, and Brian came over today to visit. Brian, always good to have you back in Stoneville, man. Oh, yeah. Good afternoon, fellas. It's, it's good to see you, for sure. Yep. I don't, well, I missed a couple of those last county meetings. No, you missed both of those last county meetings. Well, you, I mean, you had a, you had a reason. I know. You were I had out of town. trifecta of meetings at the beach. You were good to go, man. I missed the last one myself. Brian drove over this morning to visit just for this occasion, so we always appreciate that. It's, it's always a lot better talking to folks face-to-face if we can pull that off. If our buddies from start will happen to be in the neighborhood, we like to catch them when we can. So, Brian, it's still March. It's cold today for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were knocking around numbers. So today's Monday, the cold week, and y'all will know what we're talking about when we say the cold week because I don't think it's supposed to be cold over the next couple of weeks at it least. It warms gradually from here yeah. on for the week. Yeah, I think it'll be in the 80s later this week. Yeah, yeah that's so right. It was 27 at my house this morning. That was the lowest number I saw. I saw 23. Yeah. Tom, would you – oh, you were talking to somebody on the phone. No, I, well, yeah, talking to somebody on the phone who was from kind of south and east of Greenwood who said they saw a 22 on the thermometer on their truck, and then when I was up to walk the dog, I, I, I want to say it was a little cooler than 28, but I really didn't pay very good attention to it. It was 28 when Tracy got out of bed. Yeah. Cold yeah. either way for March the 20th. This would have been easier to talk about two weeks ago when price was – a little above 80 cents, and yeah. it was warm outside. No, no, when we actually had spring. Yeah. So, Brian, you know I've always got to ask you something. The music thing, I've retired asking you questions about music because you just point. you blow me away with that. So mm-hmm. how is the turkey hunting season going? Well, I can't complain. My my youngest, he got a bird last Saturday. Not, not this past Saturday, but – week during youth season that's a success yeah uh, he's eight years old and he uh sealed the deal so that was that was cool i just hadn't personally i've been in the game but i haven't won it yet you know if you know what i mean (laughs) i do i do know what you mean definitely i'm I'm not a i'm not a turkey hunter personally but i i can i can envision what that looks like yeah i've been in the game enough to where by by this morning i was like i'm tired but Anyway, it's a good time. Enough to keep you interested in going again. Oh, yeah. Can't not. When I have time, I try to go. But since last week was spring break, so I took a few days, took the kids, and so we had a good time. So Brian's got three. Hunting with them is a a logistical challenge. Yeah. Well, now Leo's old enough to go by himself, and he'll take camp with him, the youngest, and then I'll have Val with me, or sometimes my dad's there. So we make it work. Now that you got one that's old enough to, mm-hmm. to kind of be a, a underboss, I guess. <laughs> you never know what he's going to drag out. <laughs> <laughs> so, and y'all killed some good deer last fall too. Yeah, the old yeah Leo did, and camp yeah. yeah. We have, so we had a pretty good. I mean, we're having a pretty good streak here. So so far so good for the year. All right, so we will move on to cotton. We talked to Eric about corn. Cotton and beans will be coming up soon. It'll still be March when we release this, so Lord willing, we won't have any, any cotton in the ground. Yeah, I don't uh, think so. After this spell. I, I know, yeah, 
I know we have occasionally there been a little get stuck in the ground if the weather is good enough those last couple of days of the month. We were talking about price before we started, Brian, so that's kind of ticked down a little bit. So what are you feeling about where we might end up? Say it's the 1st of June, where do you think we're going to land? Well, you know, every time the price ticks down some, you, you can't help but think the acres are going to go down with it up to a point. But then, like we were saying, there's there's people that are going to grow cotton either way because that's where their infrastructure is, whether it be because they're stakeholders and gins and have seed revenues and or, you know, just having a, a picker depreciate, you know, without using it is not a very good situation either. But even at 80 cents, 85 is what it was during like the short course time. And we had a little bit of economics on it. And, you know, we could see about where the break even point is. So now that's gotten a little, you know, you have to make a little bit more cotton. It's hard to say. There's still a lot of moving parts with uh, corn planting. Acres could shift around if, if it's not a favorable spring. And then you talking to some economists, they act like the price is going to stay relatively stable, but there's some indicators that it might improve towards the end of the year. But what does that mean? That's not really anything you can hang your hat on. But I, we'll definitely that, be down from last year. I Probably. think a lot of that would get dictated by the planning in Texas, huh? If I mean, if they get you would think so, but I mean, I would have figured that same school of thought with the loss they had in acres last year. You think that also it, true? It would have made the price go up instead of down so yeah but aren't they saying there's a big drought in brazil as well right now yeah and i have to expect that that influences that well, a well, little bit although maybe not towards those end of year price well what about here's something else somebody brought to my attention uh how will this influence price wasn't there like a really big earthquake somewhere in turkey uh, yeah. so yes in the, where there's a lot of uh cotton mills or has something to do with i mean it, it could potentially, would that shake up the price too? Right. I didn't think about that. But yeah, that was in like Turkey, Syria. So uh-huh. you would think that that industry would be in Turkey. Like I said, I think there's a lot of moving parts to it. Um, and we'll, we'll plant some, we will definitely be planting cotton. Um, but I've seen estimates from 15 to 20% down, even as much as 30. I don't, th- <clears throat> I kind of don't think it'll be 30% down, but you never know. And that's off of five and a quarter from last yeah. year. Yep. So four, maybe. Yeah. Would be four would be 20% uh, or a little yeah. bit over 20%. I feel like it's going to be 400,000 acres by the time it's said and done. Hopefully this price will remain, you know, stop losing ground here. Right. Yeah. If the price will at least stay where it's at, at least you'll. Yeah. And people could have, you know, when it was 85 or 90 cents, people could have taken advantage of that. A, a lot of the guys I've talked to are like, if I could just get 90 cents, I can make it work. I mean, a dollar would be better, but. What's really the new thing for 2023 in, in cotton planting? Well, that'll be the release of uh, for full commercial launch of Thrive On. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Um, you, you know, it's been on the stewarded program for two years, and now it's fully deregulated. I mean, in terms of gins and lint, I mean, it can go, it doesn't have to stay domestic. It can, it can go anywhere. Talking with Dave Albers with um, Delta Pine, he thought maybe 15% of Mississippi, 10 to 15 would probably be thrive on with the rest, primarily just Bolgar 3. Well, but they're not the only seed company that's going to have that technology. Isn't that, that right? That's right. Any of the other uh, companies can, they can sell their 
Thrive On varieties. I know in our OVT we'll have some next-gen Thrive On, some Armor, and Delta Pine. You know, they all have entries. And I have to look back at the Dynagro list to see if they have one in there. It's important to get it tested because it was unfortunate that it hadn't been able to be in the OVT the past year, maybe two years. But we have looked at it on, you know, different trials that we do independently. But, and I mean, yield potential is there. It's good. If there's somebody listening that is not in the cotton industry, why don't you just give folks just a brief summary of what Thrive On is? It's a single action BT gene. It was designed for like plant bug control, and we found that it's that really wasn't its niche. It's really good on uh, controlling thrips. I've, you can see this firsthand that it, you avoid delays, like developmental delays, like you you know that you see from thrips, almost to a staggering point. Um, because now that opened up a whole new can of worms. Like how, if you don't experience those delays that you just kind of overlooked, what does that mean in terms of earliness? For one thing, you don't have to worry about thrips. Second thing, you get some like juvenile plant bug control to some degree. Still don't know exactly how much. Every year is different. But then fruit retention was, in the past two years, we've noticed that fruit retention was higher. So what does that mean in terms of PGR? Because, you know, if if the plant's going to control itself to some degree, you know, you don't want to just sit there and hammer it. But what it, you know, so that's some of the things that we're working out or trying to get a handle on with it. But, um, you know, I do think there's an earliness factor with it. Yeah, if you've got a problem that has historically, I mean, it's just always been there. I mean, thrips are very year to year, but they're a problem, mm-hmm. you know, year in and year out. Kind of don't know what you got till it's gone kind of deal. Yeah. The ability to withstand some other things too, maybe a seedling disease or maybe some herbicide injury if the weather's not, yeah, you know, completely positive. Just being a little hardier right. out the gate. I mean, well, and with just enhanced genetics overall, so many of these companies are doing such a spectacular job of breeding some of the old historical issues out of there. I mean, seedling disease isn't necessarily one of those ones that hits you from a breeding standpoint so much, at least in my head, but the whole bacterial blight thing. And then you add in any of these nematode resistances, and that all mm-hmm. can build a much better variety from the standpoint of what our farmers need to to make a good living growing cotton it's exciting i mean i've listened to y'all talk about it and you know the entomologists talk about it from the strictly the insect control aspect of it and i think it's a really exciting technology yeah and tom to your point about the nematodes um you know we've done a lot of work with that too with nematode resistant varieties and if that's a variety that you like to plant it, it works really well in controlling uh i mean and not setting those plants back so tom nematodes you you brought that up so what do you feel on the state of nematodes in mississippi and <laughs> best strategies for control Your best or maybe not control management anything you can do to manage those little critters from a standpoint of rotation or choosing a variety that's going to fit within your particular management strategy based upon the nematode pest problem that you have. And, and that's, I mean, that's pretty much where I always sit. And the hard part is, is getting farmers to recognize that they do have an issue because I think that's a problem that in the 15, 16 years I've been here, just 
trends towards getting worse on an annual basis, depending upon what someone's growing. And then the cotton acres we have, I mean, we have we have some pretty big areas with some high reniform numbers, and then we're definitely picking up some places where the root knot numbers are still present. And I think a lot of that has just been, I hesitate to say poor rotational strategies, but I think probably less sound rotational strategies. Um, because so, corn, cotton, and soybean can be a host for root knot nematode, and I think that's that's the drawback. So what does that symptom of nematode damage most often get confused with? That's a good question. In a lot of cases, it's the things I've seen over the years, people confuse it for herbicide injury. They'll confuse it for general insect injury. Maybe fertility. That's just, I was going to say, nutritional deficiency in some cases, in a lot of cases, or um, you know, poor irrigation uptake. Mm-hmm. They've not gotten enough water to it. And then, you know, you can name just about anything else that they're pointing a finger at saying that that's what it is. And really, you know, you pull the plant out of the ground and just do a a rough job of jerking it out, depending upon what kind of soil structure you're talking about. And if unless you see galls on roots, I think a lot of people kind of pass over the thought that that nematodes in general are a concern. And they remain a concern in this state on any of those acres that have a, a loam-based soil or a sandy-based soil. I think you're right on the confusing the symptoms. I mean, if you think about the nature of a nematode and it's going to track with soil texture and then nutritional problems, depending on the nutrient, they can track with soil texture. And then, of course, Herbicide symptoms from a a residual herbicide certainly will track with soil texture too. So there's no way to really diagnose a reniform infestation short of a nematode sample, right? I mean, there's no obvious symptom to say, ooh, that's a reniform. I mean, with the galls, you can tell the root knot. Not on the above ground plant part, and that's the hard part. You know, somebody has to either take it back to the lab and actually look at the roots under a microscope and determine if there is a reniform feeding issue on that. But taking a soil sample is the best way to do that. And the hard part there is, is nematodes are not generally across an entire field. They're islands within a field, if that makes any sense. They're big areas. They can be big areas, we'll put it that way. And a lot of those showed up. With the hot, dry conditions we had throughout 2022, you could drive up and down the highway and point some places out in the state that had some pretty significant nematode issues. Brian, what are the variety offerings that have some nematode, I say resistance, but you know, resistance or tolerance associated yeah. with them? Well, your uh, phytogen, wide strike threes, there's uh, 443, 411, and was it 415, the new one? Is, is that one? Uh, I have to look to see if that's the nematode. I would have to look myself. You know, there's some other ones that, like, let's say Delta Pine, for instance, it'll have the number and then NR, and then it'll be like TB3XF. There is a good Delta Pine that has good reniform resistance for sure. We looked at it last year and off the top of my head, I cannot remember what the specific number is. Yeah, I can't either, but it always, it'll have like an NR right after the number and then it'll have the, the other signature behind that. It's a 21 series. I know that. I just cannot remember the last two numbers. And I'm not up on my cotton varieties at all, but are, are any of those 
do they also have the thrive on trait associated with them? I'm sure that they will at some point. I don't think the ones that we're talking about does. It's just a, uh, it's just an an R. But we're starting to see some varieties that have been uh, repeat high yielders. So, you know, after 1646 had such a run at it, then it was just kind of like, wh- which one? What do, what do you do, do now? What do we do yeah. now? Because, I mean, we've past three years have been so different. Every year is so different that it's just been hard to detect a pattern. You know, something to do good one year and then fall on its face the next. But, um, you know, we're starting to – see some patterns with some varieties that, you know, I just say look at our own farm and OVT books and look at the varieties that always stay at the top, you know, across the, you know, different environments. And then, you know, always look at an environment close to similar to what you grow, your, you know, your particular area you're intending to plant and try to match up as much as you can. And then uh, I always think it's not, it's a good idea not to put all your eggs in one basket. You know, I always say that because, these varieties have such a short shelf life that you need to be trying something new just so you're not, so you have some experience with it. You might not want to plant like, you know, a thousand acres, but you know, maybe 40, 50 acres of something that might work just to kind of start always keeping something new to go to, you know, if and when your standby might be discontinued. I should point out two things. It's 2141 is the Delta Pine. I had to look, I thought that's maybe what it was, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to double check. Uh, and the other thing is, is make sure you know what your nematode component is, which one you're talking about, because then you really need to back that up by choosing the proper variety. You don't want to pick something that's better in a root knot area and have a reniform problem yeah, exactly. and not a root knot problem. So making sure that you're sampling that field and or someplace on your farm where you think you might have a nematode issue is really important not so much from a standpoint of numbers if they're going to be high anyways if they're going to be above threshold because i've already had at least one phone call with somebody that was way above threshold on some winter spring sampling which was kind of a shock mm-hmm. um, but knowing which nematode you have yeah. is really important so and, two questions related to that tom one if you have well let me back up Reniform right now is the more common species for us, correct? I would agree with that, yes. So if you have root knot, isn't it almost guaranteed that you're going to have reniform as well? Not necessarily. So what does one prefer over the other, or is it just a matter of where they landed? Root knot prefers that sandy soil component so a sandier soil and and i don't mean like beach sand because i in this at least in the delta and the hills and anything north of 82 we don't tend to run across places that have beach sand you do down Mm -hmm. in south southeast mississippi not big areas here but you can get down in there around hattiesburg and there's some places that are sure enough beach sand on the leaf river and some of those places reniform really prefers a loam soil something that's really silty, really loamy. Reniform absolutely loves it. And you can get, like I'm trying to think, the stuff out of Arkansas that you're talking about that like Terry Kirkpatrick looked at around your dad's place and all the rest of that. You can get one of those nematodes will tend to push out the other one. So reniform can in some cases push out a root knot component Mm -hmm. within that field type situation. But a lot of that's going to depend on soil soil series and then you know a lot of people get into the whole cec and how that breaks and all the rest of that and i don't i don't have a good feeling for most of that that's too much information to pack in my head 
Second question, with the nematode-resistant varieties, what level of control or yield response or however you're determining the effectiveness of those, what level can be expected on a, you know, a semi-normal year? I know it's going to vary wildly. You take 2022 as a serious outlier on weather over the past six or seven years. So loaded question, but you're good for it. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say I'm going to hedge on that answer because that's all going to depend on given field situation and nematode population and all the rest of that. If they're sky high, and when I say sky high, you talk about the numbers that come in some areas around Clarksdale, 60,000, 70,000 reniform per pint is obviously going to impact yield significantly. Now, how much that is, I don't. No. And in some of those cases, having more of an integrated approach might be beneficial. Well, I don't know if it's the fact that you don't know or that it's just such a moving target. Oh, it, it's a it, terrible moving target. It, it, yeah. it, it's smoke and mirrors. It's plant pathology. It's all smoke and mirrors. We've seen uh, nematode-resistant varieties significantly out-yield non-reniform varieties on a given year. And, and then... Uh, because it, it was a year that, you know, obviously you were going to have a yield reduction if you didn't have that resistance. Fast forward to the next year, same field, just, uh, you know, the farmer had us put it on the other side of the field. There wasn't any pressure, really. The nematode numbers were low. You know, there was no difference. You know, actually the other varieties out-yielded it. But so, <laughs> like you say, I mean, it just depends. Yeah, and there's a lot of factors that factor into that, unfortunately. Temperature, rainfall, and everything else. But I would say the take-home message is if you have a history of nematode problems, then if one of these varieties is suitable to your environment, then it's probably a safe bet to, yeah, it's to probably, go ahead and try one. Probably be a good idea to do that. But like you say, you need to have a history, and you need to know what kind of nematodes and match that variety. And then you still want to get a variety that would perform well in your yeah, environment. So, right. I mean— you kind of got to do a little homework yeah, to make that there's work. There's several lines that need to cross right there. Yep. Brian, I'll say thanks to you. It's always great to have somebody over here from campus. We really appreciate you coming by. Yeah, I'm glad. To, it's nice to come over. Spectacular. And as always, I mean, our regular listeners, keep up the comments, good, bad, or otherwise. We appreciate them. See you guys. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.